You're listening to the Fire Trainers Podcast, Season 4, Episode 7, published on October 18th, 2022. In this episode, we'll be talking to Rob Pincus from ICE Training about course development and program development. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and sit back, relax, for this week's episode, Targeted Trainers. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Visit the website ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. All certified instructors can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the team at Mountain Man Medical. Responsible fire instructors have trauma medical gear on the range and are trained to use it. Mountain Man Medical provides the highest quality name brand medical gear on the market at a guaranteed lowest price. Check out the Wind River Kit, especially designed for firearm instructors to have at the range. The Yellowstone is perfect to have on your belt or in your bag anywhere you go. Learn more at mountainmanmedical.com and scroll to the bottom and click on available discounts to learn how firearm instructors can save 15% off the already guaranteed lowest prices on the market. And don't forget to click on the training link to take the emergency trauma response video course for free. Get the right gear and the right training at the best price anywhere on the mountainmanmedical.com. We bring you this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor like you out there in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Rob Pincus from ICE Training. Welcome, Rob, and thanks for coming on and sharing your time with our audience. Man, I appreciate it. You are, you're definitely one of those resources that's, that specifically targets an audience that I think is incredibly important. And, and uh, there's probably too few just talking to instructors and people that want to teach and make other people better. And uh, I, I'm honored to be here talking to you tonight about this uh, topic. Well, thank you for that. And, and I just got back off of a cruise. And the one thing that was very interesting, too, there were several people that commented on my voice and about how I should be on radio. And that kind of led one thing to the other about podcasting. And many of them were very interested in the topics because they see the need for firearms in their lives, but at the same time, see where you know there's instructors need different education than just the uh, general public. So thank you for those comments. And uh, it, it's been very humbling the last couple of weeks being on a cruise and having people tell me, um, you know, they see a need for it, even if they haven't listened to it and probably gained a few listeners from that also. Awesome. Very good. Uh, well, Rob, for those people that don't know who Rob Pincus is, can you give our listeners a little bit of your background? Yeah, like uh, mostly what matters, I guess, for today's discussion is that uh, for over 20 years, my primary uh, occupation, revenue source, uh, motivation to you know do work has been education, um, education around armed defense, uh, you know, personal defense in, in a broader way, but specifically uh, close quarters, defensive handgun shooting, um, skill development for application uh, when you need it, um, which, which obviously for, for the vast majority of people uh, that aren't armed professionals, it's going to be when you didn't know you were going to need it. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, the time is now. So, so we work a lot on uh, developing what we refer to as, as counter ambush, you know, which I consider truly defensive shooting uh, skills and programs and, and, and grow from there. And, and again, that's kind of what we're going to talk about now is, is how we go from just a, a drill to help with a skill all the way through a comprehensive program and approach to training. I think that's that's a really something that we've been able to do because I've been doing this full time for most of my adult life. Um, I left law enforcement in 2001 to do this full time. Um, I was a full time cop for a few years. I've been a reserve 
uh, deputy or officer for most of the last 25 years, um, but most of that was even as a training officer for um, sheriff's departments. I'm not really working a lot of patrol. Um, you know, I was on a SWAT team at one point, on a negotiator team at one point, but most of what I've done is, is focus on education and education around the use of firearms to defend ourselves or others. Okay. Well, appreciate your time. Well, hey, the first question I really want you to help us uh, define is we've had guests on talking about course development before, but we've never had anybody on talking about program development. Can you kind of draw a line between what is a course versus what is a program? Yeah, I think, I think program development really maybe counterintuitively forces you to go deeper down into the core ethos or fundamental goal or, or philosophy, if you will, of whatever it is you're teaching. Um, you know, a, a class can, you know, be an hour long, a class can be a day long, class can be two days long, but a class is usually relatively focused, right? So today we're going to do extreme close quarters shooting. So we're going to do shooting while in contact or when contact is in, imminent within two arms reach. Uh, tomorrow we're going to do a class on uh, home defense with a long gun, whether it's a, a shotgun or uh, a rifle uh, you know, or a pistol caliber, but it's something you touch with four points of contact. Uh, and those two things can stand alone in a lot of ways. You can sort of, if you, if you, if you don't care about it, you could have one set of parameters around your home defense with a long gun class and another set of parameters that underlies your extreme close quarter shooting class. And if people don't, need to expect that they're going to be interchangeable or there's going to be a, a, a string of philosophy or a string of uh, even terminology that would be consistent. They're separate classes. But if you're developing a program, if you're developing a, a curriculum, you know, then I, I think it becomes in, inherent uh, and, and imperative for the student's success that there's as much commonality and interchangeability, um, terminology, context, um, the underlying premise of, you know, here's why you're doing this or, or, or here's fundamentally what it means to aim a gun. Like if that if that changes from rifle to pistol to shotgun, it's going to confuse your students. It's going to confuse your instructors that you're trying to certify potentially. Right. They're going to if you have different safety rules, for example, or you have different rules about how you run the range in general um, from one class to another, um, you, that inconsistency can cause problems, problems in the teaching and problems in the learning. So when you look to develop a program, uh, I think it's incredibly important that you really drive down deep and say, okay, what are our core fundamental beliefs? What's the core fundamental philosophy? What's the ethos? And then apply it consistently across everything you're teaching. Um, honestly, I see, I, I get frustrated. You know, one of the other pieces of my background, I guess, that, that might be important to this part of the conversation is that when I first got into the industry, I did a lot of magazine article writing. And my, my thing in the late 90s through the, the early to mid 2000s really became writing class reviews or talking about experiences I had in classes, um, primarily through SWAT magazine. And I had the opportunity, a great opportunity to go out and take these, these amazing courses from amazing instructors and become a student of teaching, a student of the experience that students get in our niche, you know, in our, in our tactical training niche, whether it's armed professional or the private sector. And uh, I, I think I gained a lot of insight into kind of what works, what doesn't, and what makes it harder for the student and I think ultimately what makes it harder for the instructor when it comes to even course development. So I see it, unfortunately, I even see it in courses, you know, where you're doing a drill one hour 
um, that it is in the, it gets introduced or explained a certain way. And then three hours later, you're talking about, okay, forget about what I was talking about earlier. Now we're going to do this. And it seems to revolve just around the drill that you want the student to shoot, not necessarily some ethos or underlying philosophy. So I guess that that's the, to me, the biggest difference is, is the consistency from moment to moment, from day to day, from hour to hour, from class to class on some fundamentals that both the instructor and student can rely on to be there for them when they want to explain or understand something. And when it, when it comes to the ethos, you're saying it should apply both from a pistol, rifle, shotgun. If somebody's using it in their hands, they should be thinking about it the same way. There are going to be overlapping principles, let's say. So for example, like one of our, one of our principles that we have in ICE training company is that we want to do as much of our gun handling as possible without visual reference to the guns. In other words, that I don't want to look at the gun. One of the, the things I say, and a lot of our instructors, you know, end up saying is, you know, if a deer jumps out in front of your car, do you look at your brake pedal? And of course, mm-hmm. everybody says no. You know, most people have that experience of a deer or something jumping out in front of their car and unexpectedly and they need to stop really fast. Their foot hits the brake. They don't need to look at the brake. So that's the same kind of thing, right? Your, your body knows how to stop the car. Your brain has a solution when it recognizes before you really even think about it. Your foot can go to the brake. And, and from a law enforcement point of view, you know, when you do accident investigations, you ask somebody, you know, like, tell me what happened. They, a lot of people will say, well, I didn't even have time to hit the brakes. But then there's 30 feet of skid marks, you know, before they hit the deer, or they hit the wall or they hit the car in front of them or whatever, because they don't even remember hitting the brakes. You know, they certainly didn't look at the brake pedal. So we know this about how humans behave under stress with learned skills but on the range, there's no penalty really, right? 99.9% of the time, there's no penalty for looking at the gun because when you look back up, that piece of paper, that piece of steel is still going to be exactly the same. Right. And, and quite, quite honestly, most of the drills that people are shooting under any kind of time pressure are choreographed to the point where you know they know they're going to shoot two at that target, shoot two at that target, reload, shoot two at the first target again or whatever. So looking down at the gun doesn't hurt them. But, you know, in the real world, you can imagine any number of circumstances where looking away from the threat, particularly looking at your gun, right, when you could be looking for cover, looking for that, you know, watching the first threat, looking for another threat, looking to see if your family members are okay, looking for a position of advantage, looking for police coming around or another good guy with a gun as we have more and more people carrying guns all the time. Um, There's all kinds of really good things you could be doing with your eyes other than looking at the magwell when you know where the magwell is and you know how to get your gun into it. So having that as a principle, we need to make sure that that shows up when we're doing shotgun work, that shows up when we're doing rifle work, that shows up when we're doing handgun work, that shows up when we're doing tourniquet work, right? Like if, if, you're, if mm-hmm. you're applying medical uh, techniques, you know, that same kind of thing. If The more you can do without visual reference, the better off you are. And those are the kinds of things that I think are the, really distinguish a program versus just independent classes when you see those principles show up throughout yeah that that, those are really good points because i think and i've talked about this in a previous podcast about training scars and that and training scars come from anything that we do in class that we do automatically but could get us in trouble in real life you know such as you were talking about looking at magwell and when we're on the range 
you know, no problem there. You know, maybe we can get a, get a little faster you know, magazine change if we're not sure exactly where it's at. But in real life, we need to make sure our eyes stay on target. We're looking around. We're seeing what else is going on simultaneously. And if we're focused on our magwell, where the magazine is and everything, we're going to miss something. And that could be a training scar that could definitely get us injured. The same thing if we go along and every time we shoot a target, it's to the chest and one to the head. Well, each one of those shots, we should have a decision around whether we take it or not, because in a real world situation, if you shoot somebody three times, that might be too, uh, too, too many times. Well, you know, it's one of the, th one of, this is a really good, I think, area to drive in on a little bit to help people understand what I'm talking about when I say a program, you know, or even it starts with consistency inside of any coursework. And then it, then it turns into consistency between your courses or classes. And this would be a really good example. I can't tell you how many like good instructors, like solid guys who, who I think teach really good skills and run really good classes where I've heard them say things like you just said in a lecture. So in a lecture, they're saying, you know, you don't know how many shots it's going to take. But then in their drills, like every drill throughout the entire day is a fixed number of rounds. You know, it's always shoot five on the whistle or shoot three here and three here or shoot two, reload, shoot two, shoot one, then, you know, assess, shoot another one. And, and it's like, you, you know, as a student, you know, I just usually go along with the flow. But then, you know, usually, especially, you know, the last decade or so, it's it's. Somebody, you know, the instructor might say afterwards, you know, hey, so what do you think, Rob? Well, here's, you know, it occurs to me, you said this in the lecture, but then when we were on the range, everything you did was a fixed number of rounds. And I hear a lot of like, well, that's just how, that's how that drill works. Okay, but it's your class. You could change, if you really believe your students shouldn't fixate on firing a certain number of rounds, but should be like visualizing a threat stopping and, and think about shooting in bursts if they're shooting at chests at close range, you know, then then why don't you have them do that in the class? And, and it's, well, that's not how I was taught that drill or that's not how, you know, again, that drill was described or that's not how the qualification course works because you can't score a course of fire if people are shooting, you know, four to six rounds as opposed to everybody shoot four. And I think we make a lot of compromises because of a complacency, you know, tradition, and then B for those scores, right? So, so we, we say a lot of things. Um, and how many times you've been in a class where an instructor says, you know, uh, I'm going to teach you a few things and we're going to run, you know, for time and see how you do when we're on the clock, I don't care how you do it, but I want to teach you a few ways to, to try it out first. And then you pick whatever way works for you. Um, I think that's, that can be a problem too, right? Like when you talk about putting a program together, if the instructor doesn't believe enough in what they're teaching you to, to suggest that, you know, you really, this is what you should be doing. And then obviously explain why it's hard to build a program, right? Like how do you have mm -hmm. a program if you're, you're beholden to the standards that somebody else has set? So you're saying, okay, I'm going to build a class, but Texas department of public safety says that people have to pass this particular course of fire. I don't agree with that course of fire as being a great metric, but it's the metric I have to score them on. So I'm going to teach the class to help them achieve that metric. Right. And, and obviously we know like that's the kind of thing that happens in police academies and kind of big picture military training and CCW classes all the time is, is we teach to the test. Well, again, that, that would be an example. It may, it may not be what I would want out of a class or what you would want out of a class, but it is the right way to build a program. You know, you, if you're building a program to help people pass the CCW qualification course that the state mandates, 
then that program and that class need to be consistent with eventually what you're going to do. So, you know, that might be like the most important word. Obviously, I keep using it that, that comes up time and time again is just inside of a program. And of course, first inside of each class, you need to be consistent to the end goal, to the principles. And, and maybe another important thing to think about is the starting point. Uh, you're not going to have the same type of course or program for like a SWAT guy who's moving towards danger as you are for the guy who's going to the mall with his kids and wants to do anything he can to avoid danger, um, but still may be faced with it and have to deal with it. Right. So again, from a programmatic point of view, I do think there's a big, big difference between a purely defensive, again, counter ambush program and a just a shooting skill development program that just you want you to be able to get hits and get hits fast on a range in a controlled environment. And then a armed professional program, skill development program, where you're going to be applying your skills quite often in a much more on balance way, right? Like, especially for a military team where, okay, sure, you can get caught off guard, you could get ambushed, but generally speaking, you know, you're getting on the helicopter and, and you're going to jump out where bad guys are, or you're, you know, you're going to show up expecting violence in a very different way than the average person is when they, you know, go to pump gas into their car. Right. My mind's still processing all that you just said. That's, uh, you know, the consistency I think is extremely important because, okay, one class, but if you've got, you know, four or five classes that kind of, that should link together, you want to make sure you've got that same consistency on how you handle the firearm from that first class, you know, for the beginner, all the way up to the advanced level so that they're not trying to adjust their thinking in the middle of it. And, and a lot of what go along and I tell people when I'm teaching classes is, you know, some, we teach people, but it takes time for the subconscious to catch up and to be able to form it. And that's where, if you go along and start doing things inconsistent between the classes, I, to your point, I, I really think you could create some, uh, my, uh, some traffic jams in the mind trying to figure out, okay, did I, do I do it the way I did it last week or do I do it the way they're telling me this time type of thing and how they're drawing and moving, shooting, uh, those types of, uh, skills. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, um, we talk about like the shotgun versus rifle. You know, I tell people if you, I don't run shotgun specific class. It's been a long time since I've run any shotgun specific classes. You know, they, they, quite honestly, it's not that popular. I'm not as big a fan of a shotgun for defensive use. So I'm not trying to push students towards it from rifles, but if somebody wants to, to use a shotgun in one of my long, you know, it may say defensive carbine class or, you know, intuitive defensive carbine shooting, it doesn't matter to me if you show up with uh, an AR pistol with a brace, you show up with a, a SBR, you show up with a lever action gun, you show up with a pump action shotgun. The fundamental structure of the course is the same. Uh, the difference is going to be the gun handling. And I, I kind of joke if I can teach, you know, a class with three guys and one of them using an AK and one of them using an AR and the other one's using a Tavor. Uh, throwing a pump shotgun in there isn't going to screw me up anymore, right? Like mm -hmm. it's still three different ways to reload, three different ways to to uh, to to clear a malfunction. It's it's three different. There's a lot of different things going on at different points with with a Tavor and AR and AK. Throwing a pump shotgun in there just you know probably for me it almost helps the class in some ways because I can reinforce once again, guys. It's still basically the same thing: grosser motor skills over finer ones. Whenever we have a choice. Uh, visual, non, you know, visually referenced gun handling. Whenever we have a choice, 
um, linear non-diagnostic malfunction clearing. We're, we're not going to try to figure out what happened. We're just going to get the gun back into the fight. Uh, you know, move when you're moving the gun. Uh, don't use your optic or your sights unless you need to. Uh, when you do need them, you close an eye and use like all these things. So we don't want to tell people like, well, when I'm using a shotgun, I, I like to keep you know, both eyes open. But when I'm using a rifle, I want to close an eye when I'm using the sights, unless I'm using a red dot. And then I'm going to have both eyes open for higher level precision stuff. Uh, except I watch them and guess what? They're squinting at the very least, if not actually closing the eye when we really up the ante, right? So just like, again, drilling down, and this may be not what people were expecting, but the bigger your program is, I think the more important it is to drill down to your core fundamental principles and make sure they're being applied all the time. And, and I think that's one of the things I see with, with a lot of instructors too, is they teach their pistol class one way and their rifle class another. You know, the vast majority of rifle classes that are out there in the private sector available for people to take are heavily influenced by military and law enforcement training. And more and more in the last decade, it's been military. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was more and more law enforcement type guys. Um, but obviously, since, you know, global war on terror started, we, we have a lot more military veterans in the training ranks and they're, they're recent military veterans and they're teaching more of what they learned or what they did in the military when they're doing the rifle. Uh, because we quite honestly don't have a lot of need for rifle use and, and defensive rifle shooting in even in law enforcement in the U.S. and particularly inside of our homes. Generally, we're we're using handguns in the private sector. So the handgun curriculums out there, the handgun classes, the handgun programs, I think for defensive oriented civilians are far more advanced and specific to them as opposed to you know law enforcement or military style training than the rifle classes are. So that's another place where I see a big, big difference sometimes where somebody teaches handgun in a way that is very congruent with the average person's potential need. And yet they teach rifle. Um, it's like they're running a small unit tactics course for, you know, an infantry squad, uh, not an individual, you know, locked in his bedroom with his family behind him with an AR in his hand. And, and that's another example of, of a programming error when you're teaching military style rifle course for the same guy you taught the defensive handgun course to. Mm -hmm. And from the civilian standpoint, it's all defensive use. So it should, it should flow together in a congruent program. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think, you know, one again, and let's go back to basic tactics, right? So when you have your home defense tactics, lecture and and you say okay well here's the basic things i want you to think about doing and, and whatever they are right for for any instructor i don't want to get too much into like what my curriculum is the, what i want to do is help as many instructors as possible in schools and companies that are teaching have consistency in their programs to help their students so whatever your if you were going to say you know here's your three to five home defense tactics that you're going to teach you know you got a, a lecture block a classroom with students and a whiteboard or a powerpoint whatever your style is and you're going to teach these things and if you have like well if you have a rifle in your hand you should do this or if you have a shotgun in your hand you should do this or you have a pistol in your hand you should do this and you don't actually have three to five consistent pieces of home defense tactics unless we know what gun they have in their hand I would question that, right? I would ask that instructor to drive down a little deeper, see if you can really find some core components of home defense for that person, regardless of which tool they end up with, and maybe even if they don't have any tool, right? So like if you if I look at my program, I would say we have five principles we teach consistently, regardless of whether you have any tool at all. Um, 
one of those principles is to obtain and prepare your tool for use. If you end up skipping that step because you can't find any defensive tool or any firearm, we would remind people that there are lots of defensive tools out there, right? Like I'm sitting at a, at a work table right now. I've got uh, a hammer on the table. I've got uh, I've got a, a scope that's got a sharp edge, a little one to eight here I could use. I've got uh, a mag. If I had nothing else, I have this magazine with a metal edge, you know, and I could hide behind the door if somebody burst the door and I could hit them in the head with this. That would be a defensive tool. So the principle of find something that makes you more dangerous to the person that's going to break into that room applies whether it's a shotgun rifle pistol magazine knife hammer whatever mm-hmm. uh, so so I really think that that's that's something that, that instructors can do is is look at your lectures see what it is you're covering in your lectures and and make sure you're really seeing that when you run drills on the range make sure that that you're you're applying your own advice to the students to the way you develop the drills the way you run live fire and I, and I would challenge any instructor to, to really question what they're doing if their only answer is well these are the drills so it doesn't matter what i think is going to happen in real life here's the drills we use on the range um, i would challenge you to, to you know come up with better drills find drills and and ways to do the live fire that are more congruent with your expectations for what your students are going to have to do when they apply the skills and, and the number one distractor from that you know is timers you know we tell people every fight's going to be different but then we try to establish quote unquote standards uh, to a timer in a controlled environment. And I think we, we overplay them, you know, but, mm-hmm. but again, let's go the, let's reverse engineer that. If somebody's standing on the range and, and an instructor is listening, you're like, Rob, you're crazy. I've heard this, heard your, you rant on this before. You're nuts. Timers are incredibly important. We need timers. Cool. If you need timers, let's make sure that your lectures are congruent with what you're doing with the timer, right? Again, class development, curriculum development, program development still relies on that element of consistency. So, you know, if if, uh, Rob Latham would be a great example, right? Like like Rob Latham will tell you and he begins his class, I'm not teaching you tactics. I'm not teaching you, uh, you know, the clearing a room. I'm teaching you how to shoot and how to, and if you need to shoot while you're clearing a room, I'm going to teach you the best way I know how to do it. And he uses timers to facilitate that, you know, in his classes and he'll explain why, but he never pretends that the timer has anything to do with, you know, the bad guy, you know, you have one second to get your gun out or you're going to die. Like he would, he would never, I've never heard him say that. I don't think he would say that. And yet I think there are some instructors out there who, even though they know better, um, they will wrap their head around some standard and say, you know, if you can't get your gun out of your holster in, you know, 1.5 seconds from concealment and get shots on a chest at 15 feet, then you have no business carrying in public, um, you know, and there's really no basis for that kind of a statement. And yet I hear those kinds of things said sometimes. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of, uh, a lot of other factors that, that go into that. And we've, and we've got to have the brain power to determine exactly what we're facing and say, you know, we've got to wait our turn before we draw all those types of things, because it doesn't matter if the gun's drawn on us, a one second draw is still, we're still going to get shot over it. And those are the ty- some of the, I agree with you. You know, instructors have got to think about what they're telling their students because it's part of, um, you know, call it a training scar where people can go along and be told one thing, but in real life, they've uh, got, got to be thinking about things uh, completely different and having the consistency. Um, I think it, you're, you're making me think, Rob, which is good. Well, good. That's hopefully that's the, the idea. I'll give you an example of people are having a hard time wrapping their head around maybe these concepts. 
I'll give you a really straightforward example of, of uh, it was, I don't know, let's say five years ago, there were a couple guys, um, one of whom I have a lot of respect for. One, you know, he, he does good on the YouTube. I, I don't know him really to be a teacher or an educator, but he kind of plays one on YouTube. And uh, both of them were kind of being loud about this concept. And there were other people asking me about it and saying, you know, I heard this, I heard this. And the concept was, that you need to be, you know, we all say you're accountable for every bullet that comes out of your gun, right? Mm-hmm, right. And and I think we would all agree with that conceptually and, and sort of philosophically. Like if something, if I fire a bullet and something happens downrange of that you know, my muzzle, that's on me. Now, what that doesn't mean, however, is that in the middle of a fight, I am going to make an isolated individual cognitively processed decision to fire each round in the middle of a gunfight. Like the human brain can't even work that fast, right? So if you, if you know neuroscience and you study information processing and, and cognitive decision-making, you'll, you'll find out that the best we can do is about a third of a second, right? Like, like F1 drivers staring at the lights, you know, waiting to go completely isolated, choreographed, totally controlled, super practice, some of the, the fastest uh, reaction times measured in sports on earth, uh, F1 drivers getting ready to jump off the line when the lights go out, and they're around a third of a second, maybe just below that, you know, so in clinical conditions, you might have a third of a second um, as your reaction time, but in the real world, right, like responding to something like the bad guy falling down in a dimly lit parking lot after he was running at you with a knife and you pulled out a gun and started shooting that's the idea that that's going to happen in a third of a second I, i i would question but let's just pretend for a second it's a third of a second well we all know that you can get splits time split times well under that at close range defensive shooting you know we, we know that you know some people can fire six seconds uh, six shots in a second and five shots in a second isn't unheard of by any stretch, you know, on the range or in defensive shooting situations. So if I'm shooting at a quarter of a second or a fifth of a second or even faster, and it takes me a third of a second to take in the photons from the bad guy falling and make a decision to stop the automated repetitive motion of trigger press, recoil, trigger reset, trigger press, recoil, reset, trigger press that. If, if that's an automated process that's just happening because I've decided I needed to shoot and my brain is waiting for the information to come into my brain and say, now you can stop shooting. That's real. Like that's what happens. Right. And we know this, like in law enforcement, we've had expert witnesses explaining this to juries and judges uh, for, for decades. Right. Why did the guy have a bullet in his back? Well, because he was shooting at me and he, he turned and fell and I was still shooting as he was falling. And it doesn't matter what your freeze frame looks like. My brain hadn't caught up to what had happened when that muzzle blast was coming out of my gun. And that's, and every, like I said, neuroscientists and expert witnesses will come in and explain that very easily. But yet I saw this, this trend starting where some instructors were saying, you have to make an independent decision about each bullet. So don't fire a bullet unless you actually need to, to fire that bullet. You can't fire a burst of rounds. So I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me talk to a couple of these guys. So I, I had some really interesting conversations. Some, like I said, were very educated and, and I understood the perspective. Other guys, it wasn't as educated. It was just like, well, we always say you're accountable for every bullet. So wouldn't that mean you make a decision? And I'm, and I'm thinking, no, but the crux of it was, okay, timeout. Let's just do it this way. If you believe this philosophy, 
when you're on the range and you let your students shoot multiple rounds, you got a chest size target at 15 feet. Are you letting them shoot more than three rounds in a second? What do you mean? Well, if, if you're saying that they need to independently decide to fire each shot, and we know that the human brain isn't going to make that decision independently in faster than a third of a second, and that would be under the best conditions, then I'm assuming you would never let your students shoot a drill where they were shooting a split time less than 0.3 or 0.33 or 0.35, something like that, right? Well, no, that would be ridiculous. Well, wait, how can that be ridiculous when you're saying that's your requirement, right? And obviously you see that that, that argument just kind of spins off into, into the distance, but mm-hmm. that's, that's an example of what I'm talking about. When you philosophically hold a position in your lecture, but then your range exercises don't actually reflect it, you know, and that's a really important piece of this consistency across the program, you know, is what you're saying congruent with what you're having your students do. Yep. Again, my mind's uh, thinking about that because I've, I've been in classes before to where, you know, people are pushing themselves to get to that point two, you know, below point two uh, splits on shooting. And what you just said really hits home that if we're going to go along by accountable for every shot we take, um, we don't even have enough time in between there to make, make any kind of, uh, discussion. We're way out of, you know, beyond our headlights in other words. Yeah, and again, don't get me wrong. Don't, I don't want to be mis- misheard on this one. I believe we're accountable for what happens with that bullet, but I do not believe that means we need to make an independently articulable decision about mm-hmm. each bullet. So, so when someone shows up, I'm deciding to shoot until I don't need to shoot anymore. And obviously that's a perception, right? So we always use the airsoft gun, right? I perceive the need to shoot and then I will perceive that I don't need to shoot anymore. So I'll stop shooting. Well, if it turns out the guy has an airsoft gun, I was wrong with my initial perception, right? I didn't actually need to shoot. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not justified in shooting, depending mm-hmm. on the circumstances and the context, but, but this is all perception. And it takes time for our brain to take in information, perceive things, and then take an action or stop an action. And, and again, I think most instructors know that. Most instructors would, would communicate that to their students, especially new students in a defensive shooting situation who have all kinds of questions about when can I shoot and how many shots is okay and you know how many shots is it going to take and sort of all those newbie questions. And I think most instructors answer them really, really well because we've, we've learned a lot in the last few decades about this kind of stuff. But then the range drills don't necessarily reflect what we know about the dynamics of an actual fight. And I, I think that's, you know, again, probably the biggest disconnect I see in, in programs across the board. Good. Really good. I like it when the guests make me think, and I'm sure it's making our uh, audience think also for it, because I'm going to apply uh, apply some of these principles to classes that I'm teaching in the future too. be consistent between them. Um, when it comes to... Um, Again, my mind's just wrapping around all this, Rob. This is great. Um, even when it comes to first aid, um, I'm thinking the same type of thing to where we're, we want to be, you know, consistent in how we're approaching things, um, you know, with tourniquets on airway, you know, breathing, you know, circulation, all those types of things. Everybody knows those. And I would look at those as kind of being the ethos of, you know, trauma care is, you know, you got the airway, breathing, circulation, and doesn't matter what else is going on. Those, those are three things you're worried about to begin with. And it's consistent among all the care that you give that person until they get to the trauma center. 
Yeah. And what I find like in, in being a student of teaching, um, I find like the medical guys, the guys who really, you know, the trauma surgeons and the, the 18 Delta, you know, SF medics, they're they're when they teach this stuff, they will drive home just the, the fundamental core. This is important. You you don't worry about any of the other stuff if this isn't happening. You know, if you've mm-hmm. done that and that's stabilized, this is the next thing to do. And don't worry about anything else. If you can't do this, that other stuff doesn't matter. I, I think one of the truisms that we have to remember too is in in the shooting world, which I know is most of you know most of the audience and it's most of my work, we don't have nearly as much experience in in the individual right as a doctor does a trauma surgeon right if you get that that even a paramedic right like a paramedic a trauma surgeon uh, an 18 delta over the last couple of decades you know these guys have way more hands-on experience doing the thing that they're trying to teach the student how to do than any of us do when it comes to defensive shooting right like right. the guys who shoot you know have, have a lot of uh firearms uses under their belt are almost all, and I would say all really that I know of paying a little bit of attention to the industry, they're all armed professionals. So if you've got the SWAT guy who's been in 18 shootings or the, you know, SF or Navy SEAL guy who has lost count of how many shooting situations he's been in, those experiences aren't the experience of the guy going to the mall. And we know that humans don't form memories really well under those circumstances. So the guy who went to the mall and had to defend himself, he might be a great guest speaker at the, you know, friends of the NRA banquet, but he probably doesn't have a lot to say in terms of his single isolated situation and his probably limited memory of exactly what he did and how he responded after his reactions to being ambushed. So the, you know, we can learn a lot from the video cameras. We can learn a lot from, from, science, uh, the the neuroscience, the anatomy, the physiology, um, the neurology, we can learn a lot of things and then apply them theoretically to our programs. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes it hard to to really be heavily invested in a a course or a curriculum full program that you're going to tell the students, look, I, I don't know, but neither does anybody else, really. There's nobody out there who's been in so many, you know, uh, gas station robbery, defensive shootings that they've really got a hundred percent handle on it. We're all applying different areas of observable fact or, or bodies of knowledge to this theoretically. And that's hard. And, and, and I think it's something that I had to come to terms with a long time ago. Uh, I don't need to go out and get into a bunch of defensive shootings to be able to teach somebody what I think are the best skills to develop and the best ways to develop those skills so that they'll be better prepared to defend themselves or others they care about if they need to with that gun. Um, and that I think is something a lot of instructors have to accept and, and almost celebrate, you know, like we're, you know, they always say like the, I don't know, I'm going to, I'll paraphrase, but you know, the dumb person, uh, doesn't learn from their mistakes. Right. The, the smart person learns from their mistakes, but the wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Um, all of us that are really preparing our students for armed defense, we're having to learn from the situations that other people were in and learn from the bodies of knowledge that other people have researched largely for other reasons um, when it comes to like neuroscience and sports science and behavioral learning and things like that. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Rob, it's a lot to take in. And, uh, it'll be processing probably for a couple of days still in my mind as, uh, 
as I think about what you said and how that can be better implemented in how I train people and how I, how I go along and, uh, speak, educate people, which, uh, is what I'm all, all about when it, when I get in front of people, making sure that I'm giving them the best, uh, possible information available at, the, at that time. That's awesome, man. And that's the goal, right? And, and I and I don't want people to think I just like sit in dark rooms and, and ruminate on this stuff, right? Like this has been, uh, you know, a constant journey for me. And, and when you, you know, my programs that, that we've developed inside of IC Training Company have been influenced, obviously, by our students, by, by the instructors that, that I've learned from, but also the peer instructors, right? Our cadre, our group of guys that are always trying to question and, and push and evolve, um, that's all we can all do, you know, and, and I've been really uh, lucky to be able to, to, to help uh, law enforcement agencies develop curriculum. I've helped military units develop curriculum and programs, uh, worked with Gander Mountain Academy when they were in operation with their ranges across the country. And obviously, we're now five years into the project with the United States Concealed Carry Association, where uh, we've had to take the core body of work that was ICE training companies defensive handgun program and evolve it to work within the corporate structure and the sort of mass power they have to reach, you know, just hundreds of times more instructors and therefore thousands of times more students with the material. Um, So the defensive shooting fundamentals courses that we've developed inside of USCCA, when you look at them, what I hope people see is, is probably the best example I could give um, if anybody's trained with me or any of our IC training company instructors or combat focus shooting instructors, and then they were to go look at the DSF program, it's a different class. It's a different course because it's, it's being taught in a much broader way to instructors with less experience who put like less time in. So we have to change it so that it's, it's still the same core stuff. If you boil it down, if, again, if you go back to the principles, if you go back to the fundamentals, it's the same ethos, it's the same approach, it's the same methodology. It's just changed so that we can reach more people with more instructors without compromising the quality or the integrity. So when I say those instructors put in less time, you know, the reality is that, that we would do a five-day or, or seven-day really program with the prerequisite and the team teaching requirement in ICE training company to get somebody ready to teach a two-day course. In the DSF level one course, those guys are putting in one day of prerequisite and three days in person to get a one day course certification. And then of course they do the same thing over again to get their second day for DSF level two. So breaking the course up and changing it so that we could reach more people with that core level one fundamental information um, was probably my biggest challenge when it came to program development. And it was heavily informed and empowered, you know, as everything I've said this hour has been, by those other instructors who are just as passionate about the methodology, um, but but always trying to find the best ways to provide it to our students. Good, good. Well, I definitely appreciate you sharing your observation between uh, a course development and program development because uh, it is enlightening, something I hadn't really thought about until now. Uh, well, Rob, we've been asking all our guests this year to go along and recommend an annual event that instructors uh, should check out. Do you have one in mind? You know, I I have for a long time. I was a, a conference junkie, you know, and I would do um, man went in law like every. I mean, from going back to to Trexpo, uh, you know, some of the tactical conferences. Um, TACCON that uh, the Rangemaster Polite Society group would do. I would, I would go and teach that every year. 
the any shooters event. There's so many great conferences out there that are regional. Um, one of the things that I think is is incredibly important to do is to get outside of your click. And inevitably, a lot of those conferences become clicks. And, and that's good because, again, we talk about consistency. It's good in some ways because it reinforces the core fundamentals, the core philosophies, the core ethos of a group. And you, you get a lot of consistency in those, you know, round robin, four hours here, four hours here, four hours here kind of weekends. But I think it's also important for people to look in a broader way. Um, especially instructors, not necessarily students. Students, I, I think, generally are better served staying inside of a, a, a curriculum or a program. For the instructors to make sure their program isn't completely out of touch, going to something like um, the Concealed Carry Expo um, that USCCA has been running for five or six years can be a really good way to, to see what else is out there and to network with a lot of other instructors. Um, unlike SHOT Show, unlike the NRA annual meeting, uh, the, the CCW Expo is really training focused, and I think it's become uh, a, a really kind of must-attend event, a go-to event for people uh, that are teaching private sector defensive handgun, especially, um, but really any of it, active shooter, rifle courses, medical courses. There's just such a great concentration there of teachers and educators and people who are developing curriculum because because USCCA does have a really wide uh, band of, of coverage when it comes to what they're offering now. Um, they just released it, yet an, another rifle course recently that, again, has a lot of overlap with the core philosophy of the DSF program, the core philosophy of IC Training Company. So I would say the CCW Expo is one that, that people should should put on their radar, um, if for no other reason than the network with other instructors and, and compare notes. Thank you for that. There's been a few other people that recommend the same thing, and I've been there a few times, and it's uh, been very good. And in fact, I think... Uh, a couple of years ago, I actually had you on stage and we were interviewing you then talking right. about That's what right. you were doing. Yes, we so, small world, as they say. Hey, Rob, where can people find out about you and the uh, classes you might be uh, teaching coming up? Uh, the best place for people to go uh, to find out more about the training material is Personal Defense Network. On personaldefensenetwork.com, uh, you know, we started that project in 2005. Um, we're coming up on 18 years of content development. It's not just me. Uh, it's a whole team of instructors, um, some of whom uh, overlap you know, 99% with, with the way I teach and the stuff I teach, and, and some of whom overlap maybe about 9% and approach it a little bit different. Um, I, you know, I pu- publish people there who are serious about the craft of teaching and, uh, and, and, and covering all areas of personal defense. So a lot of stuff that I don't cover, medical, a lot of the unarmed stuff, things like that. So personaldefensenetwork.com is the best place to go to see what's going on. Um, we run the training tour, which is the bulk of my classes, our PDN training tour classes. Um, I do run classes uh, that people can find throughout the year at, through intuitiveshooting.com. Um, but Personal Defense Network, and also I'll give a, a, a specific point to the counter ambush material. Um, about a decade ago, I published a book called Counter Ambush. Um, and though we have videos and a lot of downloadable PDFs from that book available at personaldefensenetwork.com. So if you want to learn more about sort of the, the philosophies I was talking about that underlie a lot of what we teach in our courses, Counter Ambush um, is the book that has a lot of that science and uh, theory. Very good. Appreciate it. I do have your Counter Ambush uh, book, and it is uh, very enlightening to read and uh, think about how you would uh, react to those kind of uh, situations. Well, Rob, appreciate your time this evening and uh, educating myself and the listeners. 
Hey, man, I appreciate the opportunity. And, and as always, uh, I really appreciate, again, what you do, specifically targeting the educators in our community. It's, uh, it's something we need to pay more attention to as, as a group, I think. Um, focus more on educators and not, not just the, uh, the shooting all the time. There's a lot to be said for just, just thinking about what we teach and how we teach. And the better we teach the instructors, the better the instructors will teach the students. That's uh, my, my thoughts. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. Thanks, Ralph, and take care. That's a wrap for this episode, and I hope I gave you additional insight on program and course development there with Rob Pincus. Now, do you have a topic you'd like me to talk about? Reach out to me. Let me hear from you. Or you got somebody you think I should interview, let me know. Rob Pincus reached out to me, and that's where this topic came from. Email me your suggestions, comments, feedback at FTP at concealedcarry.com. You can also leave me feedback on our Facebook page at firetrainerpodcast.com. Also at our website, you can listen to all our previous episodes from episode one all the way through the current season. I also want to ask you to leave us a review on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you listen to us at. These ratings help people find us and can see what people are saying about our content. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association, and check out their instructor insurance. You hear me talk about this on every podcast, but they're a great group of people, easy to work with. And for listening, remember, you get 10% off at checkout by using promo code FTP10 at checkout. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.